1946, Henri de Lerbach, a French Jesuit theologian, published a volume entitled Surnaturel Etude Historique. This book, though principally written in a historical mode, implied a strong criticism of the then dominant version of Thomism, and in particular of the so-called system of pure nature. Positively, de Lubac claimed that according to patristic tradition and to St. Thomas himself, there is at the heart of the human being a natural desire for the supernatural. Surnatural proved enormously controversial when it was published and has continued to generate layer upon layer of comment interpretation and debate. I had to go at summarizing uh, something of the complexity of the situation to my 25-year-old data scientist daughter last week as follows. Thomas Aquinas was, among other things, a great synthesizer and interpreter of the previous theological tradition. Thomas was in turn interpreted by influential figures in the early modern period. In the 20th century, uh, when the understanding of Thomas through the lens of these influential early modern interpreters was dominant, Henri de Lubach offered an interpretation of the early modern interpreters of Thomas as in fact mistaken. He offered a different interpretation of the patristic tradition and of Thomas as an interpreter of that tradition. His interpretation of Thomas as he, and his interpreters has in turn been questioned by critics both in the mid-century and in the last decade or so. Even where de Lubac is received positively, furthermore, there's considerable debate about how he himself should be interpreted. So the, uh, this puts me in line with a comment from um, one of the earlier speakers about not having a yardstick long enough to mention the complexities of this debate. But so, so a, a, a relatively recent layer, John Milbank, for instance, has with great gusto reinvigorated debates in English-speaking theology around nature and grace and the legacy of de Lubac by offering his own radical interpretation of de Lubac. It's increasingly clear though, particularly in view of an excellent book recently published by Jordan Hillebert, that there are reasons to question uh, the faithfulness of Milbank's reading of de Lubac. So layer upon layer of claim, commentary, interpretation, and debate. It can seem, especially to those coming relatively freshly to the controversy, overwhelming, and maybe unedifying. So imagine going into a large room and seeing a huddle of people at one end engaged excitedly in a seemingly never ending debate. They're busy disagreeing about the starting point, about who said what. They constantly question each other's account of what they're arguing about. They throw around lots of technical terms without seeming to agree, to agree on quite what they mean. This excitable conversation seems to be going on forever with no signs of coming to a conclusion. What would you do if you were to go into a room and see this kind of thing happening? It depends perhaps on your personality. One response would be to turn your back on the whole thing, look for another quieter room, leave the debate behind, go off and have a simpler and more illuminating conversation with a few less combative friends. Or perhaps on the other hand, you have the sort of personality which is drawn towards vigorous argument. But then what do you do? How do you enter into this argument? How do you find your footing in it? since it's hard to follow all the strands, to judge between all the competing claims. Perhaps you just choose someone you already know and feel an affinity for, oh, I see a Dominican habit over there, uh, and you side with them. Or perhaps you don't already know anyone, but you're drawn to the style and to the conviction of one of the parties. Someone has a particular intellectual charisma, they're particularly exciting, so you nail your colors to that position. I'd like to recommend against either of these strategies. What we have in this ongoing multi-layered debate is, in spite of its terrible complexity, 
not just a distraction or a sideshow or pointless academic discussion, which is about nothing but itself, no matter how much it may look like that at first glance. What's at stake is a theme that's genuinely at the heart of Catholic theology. And I'm here repeating a list that I've heard several other times people make in an introductory way in their lectures. And there's nothing wrong with a bit of uh, repetition, I think. So if you go into off into one of the side rooms and pursue some other theological conversation, more likely than not, you'll eventually find leading back to something in the nature grace sphere. How you think about moral theology, about political theology, about the relation of faith to reason or philosophy to theology about the relation of church and state, church and culture, sacred and secular, about dialogue between the religions, about Christology, as we heard yesterday, about apologetics or catechesis, about vocation, spirituality, even about theological method. All these things are somehow intertwined with questions about how we understand the relation of nature and grace. Of course, it's kind of truism that every topic in theology tends to be related to all the others, but there's something particularly central and structural, especially for Catholic theology, about this question about the relation of nature and grace. So then in turn, that makes the partisan approach where you somewhat arbitrarily pick a team and stick to it sound appealing. Who's ever really gonna come to terms with all the different layers of contested interpretation? Do you really have to decide, say, whether Milbank's criticism of Feingold, who criticizes, criticizes Dulubach's criticism of early modern systematizers of Thomas Aquinas is fair, on the basis of full and charitable understanding of each of those figures, Milbank, Feingold, Dubach, the early modern figures, Thomas, uh, before you can pick a side and decide what to think. But of course, picking a side uh, and sticking to it without trying to gain a broader and sympathetic sense of the views of other parties is not a particularly edifying way to pursue Catholic theology. In this paper, I hope to provide first a relatively peaceful approach to this scrum of an argument, a way through that's not absolutely new, but which hasn't, I think, been sufficiently considered until now for reasons that I hope to explain. And secondly, to help negotiate the tendency within this debate to excessive abstraction and complexity, I want to relate what I propose is, well, I want to relate the debate to, or, or what I propose in it, to a fairly ordinary moment in human life. Um, so in fact, and, and actually it's a moment that was touched on from a different and more philosophical angle at the end of Judith's paper just now. So again, I think repetition is helpful. So in fact, I'm gonna begin with an anecdote. Now that's a journalist's method, of course, to start with a story and something I would normally resist in a formal academic context. But there's something so desperately complex seeming about where we find ourselves now in the nature grace debate that I think keeping in mind from the start, a concrete point of reference uh, will be useful. Here then is my anecdote. I once heard the report of a disagreement between two friends. They're both serious, thoughtful and practicing Christians, quite deeply prayerful and insightful people in my judgment. And each had nursed a parent through a difficult final illness. One of them, who I'll call A, had at the time of the disagreement recently read a work of a contemporary uh, New Testament theology suggesting that death was in the New Testament the great enemy. And this made sense to her. Death was the great enemy. Her friend though, whom I'll call B, was resistant. She had begun life as a student of biology and thought that death was organic, part of the cycle of nature, and had to somehow be accepted to be come to terms with. He had to come to terms with it. When I first heard the story of this disagreement, 
between, in fact, two sisters in the same religious congregation, I saw what these two friends presented as a stark choice, a fork in the road theologically. Is death the enemy, fundamentally, or is death an integral part of life to be accepted with a wise, if hard-won, maturity? They couldn't both be right. One had to choose one option or the other. I come to view my own initial reading of that situation, however, as wrong and as too simplistic. I've come to think that true wisdom lies precisely in having it both ways at once, and that a proper understanding of the relation of nature and grace helps one understand how that can be the right rather than a right and proper rather than just a confused way to live with and to accept both perspectives. One thing which makes the debate which de Lubac launched in 1946 with Sir so very complex is that it operates in several dimensions simultaneously. De Lubac made proposals at the same time about the history of theology, about systematic or dogmatic theology, and about the relationship between the two. Historically, de Lubac made claims, as I've already said, about how St. Thomas related to the Greek and Latin fathers about what Thomas himself really said and about a subsequent distortion, which he was persuaded arose um, in the centuries which followed. But woven into the claims about what our predecessors at different times did say were claims about what we now should say and why. Arguments in systematic or dogmatic or whatever you want to call it kind of theology. And beyond that, de Lubac was also on a third level suggesting something controversial, at least at the time at least, about how historical theology should be envisaged and done, about how tradition itself moves and develops and is to be received, how past relates to present. All three dimensions were important, and all three have been influential in differing ways. But it's in the second dimension, in proposals for how we ourselves ought to think about nature and grace, that there is in de Lubac the strongest sense of urgency. And it's here that my own focus will lie. What de Lubac wanted to reject was a dualism of nature and grace, a two-tier vision, where nature had such a completeness and integrity, and so much a self-contained, self-enclosed whole, that grace could, some, could come to seem something nice enough, but fundamentally unnecessary and extra. He was concerned about the development of an elaborate system of thought focused around the idea of so-called pure nature, and with the proposition that went with it, there are two distinct human ends, two forms of human happiness and fulfillment, one natural and one supernatural. By developing a view of the world which included these two ends, a view in which human nature could be understood as capable of fulfillment apart from grace and revelation, de Lubac thought theology had unwittingly paved the way for atheism for a self-enclosed and self-contented secular world. And at the same time, grace and religious life and religious practice were made to seem extrinsic to human life, something else, something disconnected to our lives as actually lived. This then, a nature-grace dualism, a system of thought focused on pure nature, an assumption of two distinct human ends or goals or kinds of happiness, one natural and one supernatural, is what de Lubac criticized and feared. What he proposed, and what has come to be the key phrase in the controversy which surrounded and still surrounds him is, as I said, that there's a natural desire for the supernatural. It's woven into our very makeup to long for something beyond what is possible for us, to us, something we cannot attain through our own efforts, something which cannot be found in our own sphere. 
it's placed into the very heart of our created selves to desire the beatific vision, a vision which can in no way be achieved through our created capacities. There can then, because of this natural desire for the supernatural, be no purely natural human fulfillment, no happiness attainable simply by the right use uh, of the powers and abilities with which we're endowed. And that would be the case even if sin weren't in the picture. We'll always be dissatisfied with the merely natural, always long for something beyond it. This is what de Dubac found in the Fathers and in St. Thomas, and this is what he blamed later thinkers for stripping out from Thomas. De Lubac thought it was a paradox, this natural desire for the supernatural, but a paradox at the heart of the Christian faith and the Christian tradition, a paradox which should not be smoothed out into a too tidy system. So if we consider this as a systematic proposal, if in other words, we leave to one side contested and complex historical questions, then two objections immediately suggest themselves to this central paradoxical formulation of natural desire for the supernatural. The first has to do with grace. How can grace be grace, free, gratuitous, a genuine gift, if it's actually something necessary to nature, something needed to complete and satisfy nature? How can God's freedom in the realm of grace be preserved if the human project was always designed so as to be frustrated, to be unfulfilled, to fail, unless this further gift is offered? If human nature is, as de Lubach says, then only an unjust God could possibly leave human beings without grace. Humanity would then be in a position to demand grace, and God would be required to provide it. While the first objection has to do with grace, the second is related to nature. If the concept of pure nature is to be banished, if nature as something in itself is to be denied, always already somehow absorbed into what the Christian faith has to say about grace and the supernatural, then all kinds of difficulties seem to arise. Um, Father Thomas Joseph, I think, laid out some of them with great clarity um, yesterday. What is the human nature that the Son of God assumes if there's no such thing as a nature? Who is it that receives grace? With what faculties do we make sense of what we read in Scripture, what we learn in Revelation? There's a worry that Lubach moves in the direction of evacuating nature of all content, and that if this is done, then in various ways, we simply fall into incoherence. So I've promised to attempt something like a peaceful path through all these arguments. So perhaps it's worth at this point setting out my own position. I hope to persuade you that while there's a legitimate concern lying behind each of these criticisms, it's nevertheless poss possible to find a reading of de Lubach, a formulation of his position. This interpretation of de Lubach's position has in fact been available from pretty much the beginning, but it's been obscured, lost to view, particularly since the time just after the Second Vatican Council, for reasons that I'll touch on. Now, you might say, why am I insisting on making things more complicated by now turning to one or more interpreters of de Lubac? Why look at possible readings of his position? Why not just reckon with him directly? Although I think de Lubac had a deep concern for reshaping the theology of his and our time, a deep concern for the dogmatic, systematic, speculative significance of his research. He was not himself a particularly clear or effective speculative or systematic thinker. It's not just that he didn't present his thought in a scholastic style, but that he didn't seem particularly able to present it in any direct, orderly, methodical way. He moves with rapidity and ease among a vast array of sources. He amasses many vo voices. He piles quotation upon quotation. He circles around key points, but his own voice is, is actually quite elusive. His writing is rich, compelling, suggestive, 
but he makes his readers work extraordinarily hard to glimpse the exact contours of the vision he wants to lay out. Sir Naturel is then both a really key text in the history of 20th century Catholic theology, unleashing a really key debate, but also a rather frustrating book. Among the possible interpreters of de Lubac, I'll concentrate on two. They're not chosen at random. Both are powerful speculative thinkers, more willing to express theological positions directly than was de Lubac himself. One, John Milbank, is responsible for a renewed interest in de Lubac and nature grace debates in recent years, especially at least in the English-speaking world. The other, Karl Rahner, holds, in my view, the key to an ironic, a peacemaking construal of de Lubac's position. But as I said, it's a key which has been overlooked and misplaced for various reasons. John Milbank, who I think was referred to earlier today, at least under the category of radical orthodoxy um, by uh, Father Bonino, has been a highly significant voice in Anglophone theology in the last three decades. If not the most influential theologian of the period, then perhaps at least the most controversial and widely discussed. Milbank has repeatedly invoked and interpreted de Lubac, most significantly, I think, in two places, in the work which made his, Milbank's own name, Theology and Social Theory, first published in 1989, and then in a 2005 monograph in devoted entirely to Dulebach, entitled The Suspended Middle. As a result, Milbank has been responsible for a renewed and widened interest in Dulebach, and indeed in nature-grace debates, in the English-speaking theological world at least. Milbank has an unusual flair for communicating how much theological issues matter, for communicating a sense of drama around what might otherwise seem dry, merely technical theological issues. The Dulubach of Milbank's reading, however, is, in my judgment, at least open, um, absolutely open to the criticisms I've mentioned, absolutely open to concerns about evacuating nature of its own content and undermining the gratuity of grace. So if Dulubach is Milbank's Dulubach, then those criticisms absolutely stick in, in my mind. Milbank, it should be said, understands himself as radicalizing de Lubac's position and dismisses a good deal of what appears in de Lubac's later writings as a fear-filled falling away from de Lubac's own key insight. So the de Lubac of Milbank's reading is implacably opposed to the concept of pure nature, not just opposed to theology being based on a system of thought structured around the concept of pure nature, but opposed to allowing any kind of legitimacy to the concept of pure nature, to nature which can even conceptually, even in our thought, be distinguished from the supernatural. Human nature is, according to Milbank, by its nature graced, not just always oriented to the supernatural, longing for something beyond itself, but always to some degree already participating in grace. Larry, is that Milbank sees faith and reason as two points on a single scale, not essentially distinct, he says, but differing degrees of participation in the mind of God. As far as I can see, then, Milbank has, in the end, no real use or need for the distinction between nature and grace, no need to distinguish the gift of grace from the gift of creation. A single gratuity, a single giftedness is enough. He, Milbank, is often drawn to the language of paradox and the apparetic, but as I read his interpretation of de Lubac, there is in Milbank, in the end, a flattening of the paradox of the natural desire for the supernatural. Where Milbank flattens de Lubach's nature-grace paradox, Rahner, I think, protects and clarifies it. 
Rana, especially the early Rana, is very close to Dudubak in his instincts and commitments. But because of his greater speculative orientation, is able to take the position Dudubak gestures towards and articulate it in a, in a stable and defensible manner. I should mention that this is a very different presentation of the Rana and Dudubak relationship than one will find in Milbank. Milbank drives a sharp wedge between Dilubak and Rana, claiming that they're oriented in opposite directions. Milbank's flair for dramatic contrast and dramatic contrast and powerful phrasing comes out in his claim that Rana naturalizes the supernatural, while Dilubak supernaturalizes the natural. In my view, not only were Rana and Dilubak very close in their positions, at least in the middle of the 20th century, when these debates were at the most intense but they would have both equally resisted Milbank's merging of the categories of natural and supernatural, whether one labels this merger a naturalizing the supernatural or a supernaturalizing of the natural. Before I say something about how Rahner protects and clarifies the Lubach's vision, however, I need to make a few comments about why Rahner's contribution here has been so often marginalized, dismissed, or lost. Milbank has certainly added to the confusion and to the othering of Rahner but he's not its origin. I think, so my, my own diagnosis is that there are two reasons why Rahner's fundamentally ironic solution has been lost from view. One has to do with the direction that Rahner's own thought subsequently moved. And the second has to do with the way a particularly polemical critique of Rahner in the second half of the 1960s has narrowed and distorted reception of Rahner's thought in many circles. Rahner's key intervention in the nature-grace debate was made in 1950 in an article in the journal Orientierung, subsequently republished in the first volume of his theological investigations as concerning the relationship between nature and grace. This essay was devoted entirely to exploring and finding a way through the debates which Sir Naturel had generated towards offering a reconciling position which could acknowledge and satisfy the legitimate concerns of all parties. In the course of this article, and with a view precisely towards the resolution of these difficulties, Rahner introduces what is eventually to become one of the hallmark phrases of his theology, the supernatural existential. It's a mouthful, and I'll maybe before long try to explain exactly what he meant by it in this original context. But for the moment, what's important to note is that as Rahner's theology moved and developed in subsequent years and decades, the meaning of supernatural existential also moved and developed. The supernatural existential and Rahner's general position on nature and grace provide a helpful way to structure and clarify the Lubach's insights if one keeps the focus on this initial article in particular. If the later writings are taken as the hermeneutical key to the earlier, so Rahner's later writings are what you interpret his original proposal through, then Rahner's not so useful. In the end, Rahner moves to a position that's quite different from that of de Lubach, a position ironically rather closer to the one that John Milbank offers. So a shift in Rahner's own position and his own usage of a key term is one reason that the significance of his initial contribution has often been overlooked. A second cause of his sidelining lies in the politics of Catholic theology immediately after the Second Vatican Council, and particularly in Hansers von Balthasar's criticism of Rahner in 1966, in a cordula order de Ernstfall, in English, the moment of Christian witness. Two themes introduced here by Balthazar have been picked up and regularly recycled in subsequent years. 
One is the construal of Rahner's theology as determined by and apologetically subservient to the agenda of modern Kantian and post-Kantian philosophy. The other is an assault on the notion of anonymous Christianity. Neither side of Balthazar's attack was fair in my view. Um, I won't say too much about the first side, um, the accusation that Rahner's theology is determined by prior philosophical commitments. This is something that I've already written upon at some length. But I want to comment just a little bit about Balthazar's criticism of Rahner in connection with the theory of the anonymous Christian. Stephen Bullivant, in an article entitled The Myth of Rahnerian Exceptionalism, has shown that in the middle of the 20th century, something like Rahner's anonymous Christianity was in the air in Catholic theology. Bullivant offers a list of thinkers who, at one time or another, affirm the existence of an implicit, anonymous, unconscious, secret, or hidden faith as the means by which conscious non-Christians can be saved. And as uh, Bullivant says, it's a who's who of Catholic theology at the time. The list includes de Lubac himself, Maritain, Donnyeleu, Congar, Skilovex, Kung, Ratzinger, and indeed Hansers von Balthasar. Balthasar's cordula, however, dramatically changed the scene. The other theologians all fled from any concept like this. Um, in most cases, turned around and offered their own criticism of anonymous Christianity. Um, and that even includes Skilovex, whom Bullivant argues was probably the original inventor of the term. Um, because Balthazar had singled out Rahner in particular, Rahner's theology becomes distinctively linked to it to the point that it's often crudely reduced to it. The moral of this story is that however in the end one may wish to evaluate the theory of the anonymous Christian, it's wrong to imagine that it sharply distinguished Rahner from his fellow theologians, and just as wrong to read his theology as a whole through its lens. Now, you might be thinking I'm only making this whole impossibly densely convoluted situation still worse by suggesting something rather complicated about the interpretation of yet another figure. And of course, in a way, that's completely true. But at the same time, I'm trying to make plausible the suggestion there has all along been a solution waiting, a clear way through the morass, which was suggested in the mid 20th century, and gives some account of why, as a result of post-Vatican II politics, this has nevertheless been so widely ignored. To help us feel our way back behind this polemical divide that opened up after the Second Vatican Council, it's worth listening to a passage from a letter that Balthazar wrote to Henri de Lubac in 1950, after de Lubac had, as a result of all these, the publication of Surnatural and the controversies, de Lubac had been removed from teaching and exiled from Lyon. His books had to be taken down from the shelves and so on. So Balthazar writes to de Lubac, I fear that Karl Rahner is very discouraged now. He, who is almost our only hope, we must support him. You and he must help one another. Or again, it's useful to look at the references to Rahner that de Lubac makes uh, 15 years later in his book, The Mystery of the Supernatural, Supernatural. So 1965, one year before Cordula is published. Not only does de Lubac insist on his respect and friendship for Rahner, but he maintains there's no conflict whatsoever between their positions. What then is the proposal that Rahner makes in his 1950 article? A key, a key point is that Rahner distinguishes between our nature as we experience it and pure nature. In nature as we actually experience it, in this nature, here and now, there is indeed in all of us a natural desire for the supernatural, 
a burning longing for God himself. This is Rahner's words, a burning longing for God himself in the immediacy of his own threefold life. But this desire is part of our actual nature, not part of pure nature. The desire for the beatific vision, in other words, while it, it is always present in all actual human beings, is always already supernatural. It is what Rana calls the supernatural existential. How is this different from John Milbank's position, you might wonder? Is it not, once again, simply jettisoning the nature of supernature distinction? At first sight, the difference is quite small. Rana retains the conception of pure nature, something Milbank sets his face against. We can still think about pure nature, work with it as a concept, even if we do not simply identify it with a nature we actually experience with the nature that's already infused with a supernatural longing. Pure nature is what human nature would be if you took away this longing, this supernatural existential. It's what would be left. What does that pure nature look like positively? Here, an interesting vagueness creeps into Rahner's writing. We cannot, he says, draw a neat horizontal between nature and the supernatural. You might think that philosophical analysis is precisely what gave rise to an understanding of pure nature or that it should have access to it. But what philosophy has to work with is the nature we are in fact given, our actual nature. We don't have the ability to experiment, he says, with a chemically pure state of nature. Again, though, you might think there are at least some forms of philosophical exploration metaphysical or transcendental maybe, rather than phenomenological, which are not rooted in the exact texture of our experience, which could help here, revealing at least something about what it means to be a human being as such, apart from any influence derived from our supernatural orientation. Rahner, as I have to repeat, is vague. He seems to go some way towards allowing that philosophy can access pure nature, nature as such, and then pulls back at the last moment saying it can never quite know, even in its most metaphysically strict mode, that it won't have included too much in its account. I used to consider this vagueness a weakness and wish Rama would just come out and say simply and directly that we have no access to human nature as such or to pure nature whatsoever. And pure nature is actually nothing but a hypothetical construct to explain in what sense grace is not demanded by human nature or owed to human nature as such. An abstract concept we retain in order to solve a difficulty and nothing more. I've come to think, though, that the vagueness here is deliberate and significant and that it needs to be taken very seriously. It's here, right around this point of vagueness, that nature-grace analysis becomes most interesting. Rana says we cannot draw a neat horizontal, a neat distinction between pure nature and its supernatural modification. And I think this is exactly what he means. Not that there is no distinction to be made, but it's one we have to make with some uncertainty, without precision, without, without the ability to pin it down once and for all. There is a difference, though, a dualism within us, which we in fact experience between our nature as such, our pure nature, and a longing that draws us beyond it. And that we experience this duality is important because it's what enables us to experience grace as grace. I should just say that another difference between Rahner and Milbank that I should have mentioned is the supernatural existential in this 1950 article is never described as grace. It's a longing for that which takes us beyond, but he doesn't say there's already grace at work there. And he actually uses various formulations that resist that. But this is where the later Rahner tends to make people read him askew there. So to make all this a little more concrete, I'm going to return to the case of the two friends. 
the two sisters with seemingly opposed. On the one side, there's the view of Sister B, I'll start with her this time, that we ought to accept death. We are finite, nature is cyclical. Our individual deaths fit into the larger pattern of things, the larger interconnected organic whole. It's a matter of basic spiritual maturity, a fundamental human wisdom to come to terms with that, even if grief is necessarily a part of that process. Put it the other way around, to complain of our finitude, to wish that we might never die, from a certain angle seems childish, greedy, demanding. There have been a number of theologians in the last couple of years, uh, for instance, Ian McFarland and Catherine Sandrego, who have held that the finitude of creatures, their death, in fact, is part of their created goodness and gives glory to God. Um, shocking to my ears, but there are theologians who are inclined this way. And I think they're, I'm seeing them as responding to that side of the story. But at the same time, it's not wrong to say that death is the enemy. And not just, I think, deaths which are premature, violent, difficult, and divisive, as so many deaths are, but death as such. Uh, even in the best of cases, there's a resistance to the idea, an authentic and, I think, holy resistance to the idea that our connections to one another and to all that we value don't continue, that our relationships end. There is, I think, alongside the sense that death must and should be accepted, a spontaneous refusal, a sense that it ought not to be, that it's just not right. There is something about us that ought not end. I've described these reactions to death, or one might say more generally to finitude, in deliberately generic terms without reference to the communion of saints or the meaning of the resurrection. I've done this because I'm proposing that this double attitude toward death or finitude wells up in us spontaneously. It's not something first learned from Revelation. One can see it in Renarian terms as part of our actual concrete nature to have this double attitude. Both the sisters were right. Both the views they propose are views that we do and should have, authentic expressions of wisdom in the face of death. We know ourselves to be natural, finite creatures and know we should accept and be grateful for the gift of this, our finite existence in its limited form. And we know ourselves implicitly in our longing to be something more, creatures destined for something like deification. And so we sense that there's something fundamentally wrong, something that shouldn't be in our death. We know it's right to accept our finitude, and we simultaneously long for something more and cannot accept it. This is part of our lived experience of the paradoxical relation of nature and the supernatural that's at the heart of de Lubac's thought. In the 1950s article, then, Rahner preserves de Lubac's paradoxical conception of the relationship between nature and grace. He does this in a way that rescues it from dangers of falling into nonsense. Grace remains grace, genuinely free gift, genuinely gratuitous, genuinely beyond and of a different order to what we are by nature. Nature, pure nature even, the sense that there could be a human being, even if we lived in an order untouched race, remains both conceptually and in some ways experientially, yeah, maybe not pure, but something like a sense of what that pure nature would be. It remains um, experientially part of the picture, even if not sharply demarcated. But the paradoxical relation between the two is placed in a way that I think is faithful to Dulebach's instincts, at the very center of things. In our actual nature, we long for something beyond ourselves while knowing at the same time that we have no claim on it. We long and know that we have no right to long. Were I an atheist or a materialist, I might dismiss this longing if I would admit to anyone experiencing it or to myself experiencing it as some strange blip, some unfortunate deformation of the human psyche, a bit along the lines that Judith was suggesting that you could go in, in terms of a sense of the divine. Um, so a blip to be ignored or minimized or resisted. 
But from the perspective of belief in Christian revelation, I see it as the mark in all of us of our supernatural destiny. Yes, human life in its natural finite bounds is good and valuable, but God has destined us for something more. In fact, God has destined us for participation in God's own life. And this destiny leaves its mark on us already, even before uh, we come to revelation, in our inability to be satisfied with the natural finite bounds of our life. Now, I began by warning against adopting a partisan approach to the debates around nature and grace, against simply picking one side and nailing one's colors to their cause. But again, you might ask, am I not doing this myself by singling out Ronner? Not quite, I think. I'm not actually suggesting that we should swallow Ronner whole and take him as our only standard in this area. It is, as I said, the particular intervention he made in 1950, which is key, if we can manage to read it apart from both his own later developments in his thinking and this distorted lens of polemical critique. Even what I've said about death, in fact, I should admit is not directly from Rahner. Rahner's theology of death is, is rich and fascinating and there's much to learn from it, but I wouldn't myself want to follow it in every respect. Perhaps it's worth saying a final word about to what extent this position that I've tried to trace really is a peacemaking one. Could one imagine it making the mid-century critics of the Lubach or the newer critics in recent years content? Could it really offer a resolution for the concerns of all sides? Yes and no, I think. On the one hand, I believe there really is a way here consistent with the concerns of the Lubach to protect the gratuity of grace and to retain the concepts of, of nature or pure nature. But on the other hand, what cannot be protected is a tidy system where a neatly delimited sphere of purely natural existence can be described by a satisfyingly self-contained philosophy. There is such a thing as pure nature, but we don't have access to it directly in its pure state. There is a real difference between nature and the supernatural orientation to the beatific vision, but in our experience, we meet the two blurred together, jumbled up, often jostlings alongside one another. If we follow the particular line of thought I'm proposing, we end up with a system of thought which in some ways reflects the ambiguities of our experience. What we may need to debate then is whether that is something to be condemned or to be welcomed. Is it a mark of the success of theology that it becomes ever more clear and precise and certain? Or might clarity about where we can't be clear and about why we sometimes have to resist the impulse towards a tidy system also be something that's important to value?